when you think about it, politicians are snakes. Fuck. Wait. Wow. Do you want to run that by me again? Welcome to Watching Movies at the Bar, a podcast about bar movies and family values. I am Thomas Grabinski, and I am joined by my esteemed co-host and creative partner, Bethy Squires. Bethy, how's it going? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm feeling good. I'm uh, I'm feeling some sadness that we're coming to the end of uh, the Halloween season, but it's not over yet, and we got one more banger for the listeners. <laughs> Yeah, Lesbian Vamptober is officially over, and now we're back into our wheelhouse, which is doing podcasts about the sequels to things before we cover <laughs> the original material itself. And I, I couldn't be more excited about this one, but I'm going to continue to, you know, build suspense for people who haven't read the title of the episode they're <laughs> listening to and instead introduce our guest. Tonight we are joined by a, a very special guest. This is... Ben David Grabinski. If you uh, notice that there is a similarity in our last name, it's because we are brothers. Uh, ben David is uh, an incredible writer, an incredible filmmaker. Most recently, wrote and directed a movie called Happily, which is now available on airplanes and on uh, Roku. Ben David, is that correct? I believe that it's available on Roku airplanes. I think that that definitely lines up. How large is that fleet? How many planes do they have? I don't know. I just feel like they're the jet blue of the sky. <laughs> the, the interesting thing is like Frank T. Abagnale from uh, Catch Me If You Can, the real life guy was the first pilot of Roku Airlines. That's like some trivia for you. You learn something every day. That's great. I'm, I'm glad they put a priority on staffing legends. Uh, I feel like <laughs> that, uh, that airline's going to thrive. <laughs> the other second hire was Sully. From Monsters, Inc.? Yeah. He, yes. He, he's he's not capable of getting a plane from point A to point B, but he's capable of landing it nimbly in uh, any any Hudson. I'm finally glad that I can benefit with my last name by getting on a podcast. Uh, <laughs> I've been trying to get on this for a long time. I had my publicist reach out. No one would listen. <laughs> and it got really frustrating. And then finally, I blackmailed Thomas and he said, hey, OK, fine. Just pick whatever you want. Just let's get this over with. So now I'm on the show. Uh, yeah, Ben David slashed all four tires on my uh, 1996 Geo Metro, and uh, now we got him on the pod. <laughs> all right, so Bethy, how how are you feeling? Normal, you know. We're here. We're talking about a movie. Can we say what movie it is yet? No, we sure can. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we we are talking about the underseen, but I think well appreciated by those who have Psycho Two, which is the 1983 sequel to. I think arguably Alfred Hitchcock's most popular and enduring film in the like broad cultural sense, Psycho. Does he have a movie that is like bigger than Psycho? I don't think so. I think Frenzy is the one that all the kids watch. They just really <laughs> get into the huge Marnie uncomfortable head violence. Oh man. The Marnie heads, that's how you know if the difference between like Gen Z and Millennials is like, are they a Marnie head or are they really into Frenzy? <laughs> Frenzy is the one that, like, Gen Z and TikTok is totally embraced. Like, they have, like, the tie strangulation challenge that everyone keeps doing where they're trying to, like, recreate <laughs> what the bad guy did. I've been very impressed with what they've rediscovered. So much needless death in that TikTok challenge. But, you know, anything for... I was going to say doing it for the gram, but that just shows how much of a millennial I am. The funniest thing is actually the milk crate challenge was based on North by Northwest. <laughs> and I, I can't really explain why why I did that joke, but I just have to. So. <laughs> I Yeah, I would say that's the only other movie that, like, comes close to, to Psycho. But I think that even if other, maybe other movies of Hitchcock's are, like, as popular, Psycho is the one that's most, like, identifiable with, and I hate to say this, his brand. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. You know? I mean, he was always a director preoccupied with his brand. If you ever, like, find any interviews with him, especially, like, Hitchcock Truffaut, he just kept saying the word brand 
over and over again. And content. And no one really gives him credit for yeah using content or or gram. Yeah. Hitchcock was also an early proponent of mobile vertical video and um, actually shot a, a few of his later features in that format. That's why he remade the 39 Steps. So they had the British one that was in landscape and then vertical for the American. He was actually the first director to shoot a movie like Quibi, where he did horizontal and vertical at the same time. So like if people would like lean over in the theater, the screen would turn like basically based on where your head was in relation to the screen. Yeah, but with the 39 steps, Hitchcock's DP sat him down and showed him kind of a side-by-side. He was like, look, if we shoot this horizontal, we can get six steps. Uh, But if we shoot it vertical, we're looking at something in the neighborhood of 11. It's funny because the one thing I also know about Hitchcock's brand is he was bad at math. So I'm not sure that (laughs) argument really did much for him. Did anyone see the movie Hitchcock that came out a few years ago about Hitchcock? I don't remember whether I saw Hitchcock or... Is that the one with Scarlett Johansson? Uh, all I know was that it it was ho- horrible. I can't even remember who was in it except Anthony Hopkins. But the whole premise That's was like, why is he into violence? And you kept having like flashbacks to him as a kid, like being traumatized. It, it was a bad movie. I saw a Hitch once. You know, I really liked Hitch when it came out and... I don't know if it holds up, but I remember it really unlocking Kevin James for me because like before that Kevin James TV star. But then when you saw Hitch, you realize that like he could work in both mediums. Yeah, I just feel like uh, Kevin Kevin James has contributed in a really fucked up way to uh, police propaganda with, I, I would argue, his most recognizable franchise, the Paul's uh, Paul Paul Blart Small Cop. Mm hmm. I could see that. It was really interesting because the original title for that was All Cops Aren't Bastards. But when they did like the acronym, people couldn't tell if it was R or aren't. So they changed it to Paul Blart Mall Cop. I didn't know that. Bethy, should we get into it? What's, uh, what's, what's kind of the first segment of the show every week? The first segment of the show every week is that I talk to our guest and I ask Ben David, which is what I call all of our guests, What is your relationship to watching movies in bars? We've had some people who really love to, like, idly look up and see the Alexander Skarsgård Tarzan on a TV at a bar. And then we have other people who don't like the idea of watching a movie at a bar. They want to give all of their attention to a movie or all of their attention to their friends. And the idea of splitting their attention is anathema. Where do you fall in that spectrum? So I have two categories of what I think is like the good way to have a bar movie. One is a movie that everyone's seen so many times that it's not like insulting to just watch part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the other is someone like turning on TCM or a crazy uh, international feature or uh, I don't know, like paprika and then just putting it on so you can tell that the people who own the bar have good taste. <laughs> that kind of like vibe where I'm like, I feel like I'm giving money to someone who likes good things. Because like anything in between is terrible. Because if they're like playing something new, it's like, I don't want to see it that way. And if yeah. they're playing something that's not great, I'm like, I don't want to give you money because you have bad taste. But the best experience I've ever had was I went to, uh, is it Glendale Tap? And one time they had a TV to the left of the bar and a TV to the right. The TV on the left had Point Break and the TV on the right had Roadhouse. (laughs) (laughs) And they played them simultaneously. Holy shit. Every direction I looked was classic Patrick Swayze. So what I think the real thing would be if I owned a bar is I'd have a bunch of TVs and every night you'd play movies of one actor. So, like, you're in there, and you're going to have one TV has Big, one TV has, like, Saving Private Ryan, one TV has, like, his Dungeons & Dragon movie, or another night, it's, like, all these different Stallone movies, or you could do a theme thing like a director, like, you have, like, Tarkovsky, like, you could have all of his movies on at a bar at one time. I feel like, Ben David, you've had maybe more more zest for the bar movie-going experience than almost anyone we've had on the show. Like you just you know, just man. seem truly animated about it. Usually people are like, oh, you know, maybe I've seen one. I I would go to this bar. I would want to work at this bar to curate nights. I think, you know, circling back to the topic, it'd be cool to to have, if you have the two bars, do like one movie and then the remake. So like have Normal Psycho and then Gus Van Zandt Psycho on a different bar. Or like all 
before a star is 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 is, is are born or point break and and the yeah. point break remake every point David break likes is. the second okay, one i think better so you have the new dune lynch's dune and then the dune sci-fi channel miniseries all on different tvs mm-hmm. And then maybe like a fourth one has Lawrence of Arabia, just to like have the same kind of visual context. That would be pretty dope. Oh, that could be called Sandbar. And then the <laughs> floor could be like beach. Mm-hmm. So you're like walking around like it's a beach vibe, but it's not a beach. It's Arrakis. That's what it would be. I did see Lawrence of Arabia at a bar once. And there's nothing like seeing that like sweeping wide movie made about laptop sized above a bar at a tiki place. So shout out to Tiki No for that. That was a cool time. When I saw Lawrence of Arabia in 70 millimeter at the Arrow in Santa Monica, this famous blogger, Jeffrey Wells, uh, whoever knows because he's very sane and not a horrible person, <laughs> uh, was there with a woman and her kids. And uh, they brought giant grocery bags of food and Tupperware. And they had a multi-course meal during Lawrence of Arabia next to me. So they had like appetizers. Each person got one Tupperware and then like an entree and then a dessert and then like multiple stages of drinks too. So that's really what I think of when I think of Lawrence of Arabia is the contribution to my scarred memory of Jeffrey Wells bringing an entire meal in the theater. Were they themed at least? Like <laughs> was it like a dates appetizer then like kufta for the entree or something? I think the theme was irony because his entire you know thing is that he hates people who talk or make noises or have smells in theaters. Meanwhile, he was part of like a Thanksgiving dinner uh, at the Arrow. <laughs> anyway, I'm just imagining Jeff Wells eating a hamburger like stuffed with tortilla chips just so that it's loud as all fuck. <laughs> what a guy. All right, well, there's, that was really inspirational. I feel like maybe together we can curate a Watching Movies at the Bar series one day, and, and, and all of our fans will come to watch Ben David's Sandbar movies, and then whatever amazing thing Bethy curates in contrast. But should we talk about Seiko, too? But you should also, at Sandbar, we only play Playing with the Boys by Kenny Loggins on a loop, and then all the TVs are <laughs> muted. So you can play volleyball at the Sandbar while watching Sand movies. So we could get to Psycho 2 now. No, that's a really good idea. Amazing. So Psycho 2 came out long after Psycho and should not be good. I, <laughs> I remember it. I think I watched Psycho 2 for the first time maybe like 10 years ago. And when someone recommended it to me, I was like, oh, is this an ironic recommendation? Is this like a one of those bad horror movies? Uh, but somehow in 1983, Richard Franklin partnered with Anthony Perkins and made a really interesting character piece about Norman Bates uh, with a great Jerry Goldsmith score with incredible Dean Cundey cinematography and a, a pretty good script. I love this movie. But David, what, what made you choose this for the podcast? So when I was a kid, my favorite movie was Cloak and Dagger. Also Richard Franklin, incredible. Which is like the kid from E.T. and the Dabney Coleman um it's like a kid who has an imaginary friend based on his action figure, and he gets into kind of a North by Northwest style misadventure where, like, he's mistaken for somebody. And I just, the movie meant a lot to me. So when I grew up, I wanted to check out the rest of his movies, and that's not actually what happened. I just accidentally later found out they were the same guy. But <laughs> what happened was, uh, so my friend Brian Collins was programming Midnight uh horror movies at the Nubev about a decade ago and uh he had psycho 2 and i never wanted to see psycho 2 my my entire knowledge of psycho 2 was it might have been the from dust till dawn commentary where quentin mentioned that he really liked psycho 2 and it felt like one of those things where it's like at, at that time i was like when i first saw it i was like 17 or something i felt like one of those just like oh even psycho 2 is good i was like yeah yeah i doubt psycho 2 is any good but i saw it with no expectations and not knowing anything and it blew my mind and I found it to be like incredibly rewatchable. It's like one of those movies that I like a short list of movies. I always like recommend to people so I can, I feel like very safe that like, if I tell you, you should really watch this movie, you'll enjoy it. Cause to this date, I never told anyone to watch psycho two. And they came back to me and said, really? I don't know. It's no psycho. 
<laughs> but yeah, I think it's just awesome. It has such a different filmmaking approach, though. Like, it doesn't, you know, Richard Franklin is not trying to emulate Hitchcock. He really is offering his own filmmaker's take on Norman Bates as a character and, and where this person might be 20 years later. And I think for that, it's more successful than it would be if it tried to recreate. But, Bethy, had you seen this before? And what, what did you think of Psycho 2? I had not seen Psycho 2 before, I think, I was aware of it because I think I watched the Anthony Perkins E True Hollywood Story where it came up and then that he directed Psycho 3. So that was like the all I really knew is that there was a movie that came out like 20 years later and that for some reason they just started franchising out Psycho and I was like that's weird but go <laughs> off. But yeah, I really liked it. I I enjoyed Half of so like I enjoyed this movie, but then I also enjoyed it as a fan of the Universal Studios tram tour, right? Because it's like a completely backlot movie. So I was watching it and having like a good time, but then the other, then I was also there's a little voice in the back of my head going, "Oh, that's the same diner as uh, Back to the Future. Oh, that's also the same courthouse as Back to the Future." Half of this movie is just Back to the Future sets, and I think that's beautiful. I last night went to Hollywood Horror Nights, and I went on what they call the Terror Tram. And so it's an abbreviated version of the tram tour, and they drop you off at the Bates Motel and Psycho House. And some of the iconic characters from The Purge chase you with knives and chainsaws. And so it was this, like, uh, it, it really is a great attraction. I had an incredible time. But, like, if you think about it, it's like a funny marriage of IP. It's like you're on the psycho set, but it's like Purge people, whatever. Um, and that and that motel was built for Psycho 2. They yes. had disassembled the motel previously, so they had to rebuild it, and that's where they stuck it. So I never now every time I'm on the tour I'm like that's the Psycho Tour motel with the Psycho <laughs> 1 house. And then the Psycho 4 house was in Orlando. Oh shit. During the filming of the movie Anthony Perkins had points which to the layman out there means that he had percentage points of the gross of the movie. So whatever amount of money it made, he got a small percentage of that. Thus, he wanted people to see it. So when they were shooting and he was when he was between takes, he would have a folding chair down there on the corner where the tram would come by and he'd be reading the newspaper. And whenever people came by, he'd walk up to the tram and say, make sure you see Psycho 2 when it comes out in theaters. Hi, I'm Anthony Perkins. And like he would talk to everybody <laughs> on the tram <laughs> every day to try to like drum up word of mouth in advance for Psycho 2. That's incredible. That's so endearing to me. And I read that when, when he was originally approached just to make a sequel to Psycho, he was not interested. But then when he saw the script, he was like, oh, this is this is really Norman's story. I'd love to do that. So so not only did he do that 180, he was eager to promote the movie. They called Richard Franklin at the time, no joke, and I don't know why, but they called him the Hitchcock of Australia. And I think that uh, branding or marketing or whatever was part of the hook of him getting the job is after Road Games, which is a perfect movie with Jamie Lee Curtis. I've never seen that. I got to check it out. Road Games. I Road Games is as good as this. It's it's just an incredible movie. Uh, like just a really scary serial killer road trucker movie thing with uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. But yeah, he was called like the Hitchcock of Australia, I guess. So like when they were like trying to find a director for this, like someone in an office somewhere is like, you know, there's a guy who they call the Hitchcock <laughs> of Australia and we could bring him to America. And uh, thus, that's at least the urban legend of how he got the job. This movie has no right to be as good as it is because it started, from what I understand from my research today, it started because Richard Block, Robert Block, sorry, the, the guy who wrote the book that Psycho is based on, wrote a Psycho 2 that basically is Scream 3, like... <laughs> the killer goes to a movie set and it's all a bunch of like Hollywood oh, agents jokes. I own it. And Universal. It. <laughs> Do you like it? Uh, I got it as a curiosity because like 10 years ago when I first saw this, I tweeted, oh, I saw Psycho 2. It's so good. And someone said, you should read the book. And I said, OK. And then I read the book and it is just completely different in every possible yeah. way uh, from the movie. So he sent a copy of the manuscript to Universal, and Universal was like, this is 
bad. We hate it. <laughs> and in order to protect our IP, we're going to make a Psycho 2 with a completely unrelated plot just to like hold on to the rights so that nobody else can make this book. So it was like to prevent the Scream 3 of Psycho happening, they did what was going to be like the Dick Tracy special of Psycho, essentially, just like a TV movie done to hold on to the rights, like Warren Beatty did with Dick Tracy. But then they were, they were just like, well, what if we made it good? And they just sort of went with that instead. And that's crazy that everything worked <laughs> out to me. I think this is like the original like Lord Miller model of like over delivering on something no one expects to be great where it's like, you are like, Oh, I want to make psycho too. And people are like, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's the most crass thing I've ever heard. And then there's a really tight, complicated script that is interesting. And it's a legacy sequel that it's not fan service and it doesn't follow the template. And also has multiple moments where you think, you know, where it's going and then it completely departs. And then a director who takes it really seriously and casts it really well like, it could have just been, like, some, Norm gets out of prison and then someone shows up at the hotel and he kills him and then is dealing with the repercussions for a movie. But they didn't do that with Norm this time. It's it's so cool. He's uh, There's a real vulnerability to his performance, and despite him being this terror in the first movie, you're like, oh, does Norman have it together? Like, has he been rehabilitated? And you like, there are times you kind of want to give him a hug. Um I'm going to say now, we are probably going to get into spoilers. So if you're listening to this and you haven't seen Psycho 2 before, it's not disposable in the way that you might think. And and, and I think you might want to have the experience for yourself. So I would pause before proceeding. It's on Peacock. Go for it. It is on Peacock. It's on Peacock. And it has several twists that are like really worth experiencing in context of the movie. And we're also going to spoil the Eternals in this. So just you should skip to the end. (laughs) That one is also on Peacock. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) The Eternals leaked on Peacock and no one's motivated to take it down. (laughs) Okay, so (laughs) Ben David, because you brought Psycho 2 to us, uh, are you interested in telling the audience a a brief summary of what this movie is and how it relates to the first film? Yeah, I'd love to. So the, the real thing that this movie is about is can he be rehabilitated? The premise of the movie is he's just gotten out of prison and he's trying to get his life back. And some people are rooting for him and hoping that he's learned the error of his ways and can function as a person. And other people uh, are very angry with him and angry that he got out. And it's a movie from his perspective, as he himself starts to wonder if he still has any sanity left or if maybe his mother might still be alive. So the whole movie is basically from his point of view and for a long time you only experience what he does and only know what he knows so it has a very kind of sub not a subjective or objective which one is it subjective yeah yeah it's the movie's subjective but basically it's just a movie about um norman bates going back to the hotel and running it and trying to have a normal life and uh people start dying and your question is has he snapped again or is there another killer Right. And and so much of the action of the movie takes place just intimately in the Bates home between Norman and between his co-worker at this diner where he works immediately after getting out of prison named Mary. And she's a, a beautiful young woman. And having seen Psycho, you're like, oh, is this going to go awry? Is something terrible going to happen between them? And so there's this really pervasive tension even though there is kind of a sweetness and an unexpected understanding between them. And obviously it's complicated as the movie goes on, as you realize who she is and how she relates to the plot of the original film. But I love how kind of simple and dialed in the movie is and how much of it is just kind of between the two of them. And she's great, Meg Tilly, in this. And her hair is incredible in this movie. She's got this 70s shag in the early 80s that is just fucking dynamite. Yeah, it's got like an 80s house style to it visually, but the movie has more of a 70s thriller vibe. It does feel like it was made then, especially the Goldsmith's, Jerry Goldsmith's score is absolutely incredible, and he's not trying to redo Herman at all, and it feels like sort of a classic 80s Goldsmith score. The score is one of my favorite parts. 
Yeah, me too. And this movie, this is this is more taking a step back just on a level of like what kind of movies Hollywood's greenlighting now. But this is one of my favorite kinds of sequels, which they don't really make anymore, which is you give uh, a filmmaker with a totally different sensibility the opportunity to make a sequel to a movie that feels nothing like the original, just because at the time there was there was an opportunity to do that. Now no one's making movies like that. Yeah, you save that energy for reboots and revivals. Direct sequels have to be just the same movie again. <laughs> sometimes it's a filmmaker who's a terrible fit, but they're expected to really emulate the tone. And sometimes there's a weird imitation and the magic is lost. Whereas something like this, it's like, no, this is just the Richard Franklin version of the Psycho world. So have you guys seen Psycho 3 or have you two? Mm-mm. I have not. So Psycho 3 is, if this is a 10 out of 10, like Psycho 3 is like a 7.8, but it's a 10 out of 10, like on the trash meter not in terms of like, the craft of it or that it's like stupid it's just very much like it's a kill fest with uh jeff fahey as a huge sleazebag who lives at the hotel uh oh shit am i gonna have to go watch this movie tonight yeah you do it and also watching the three of them back to back i've had people over to do that twice it is such a fun experience because all three of them have completely different modes um whereas like the original is a super classy hitchcock proto slasher this is very much sort of like a universal studios 80s classy uh programmer and then three is just like it's it's basically like a drive-in movie for teenagers like it's got all kinds of rowdy stuff some really insane twists a lot of violence way like the first one has like implied violence this one has some real violence three is just like violent as hell but watching three of them in a row is really fun. But I highly suggest watching three. Just know it's like there's no there's, you can't spoil it like the way you can this because it doesn't have like a sophistication to it. No offense to everyone involved. <laughs> yeah. So 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 Bethy already plugged uh, our, our show sponsor Peacock. Um, but I, I should say Psycho Three is also on Peacock. And so they that that one is directed by Anthony Perkins, but they doubled down uh, on the Psycho franchise. And on Richard Franklin, because Cloak and Dagger's there, too. It's just a message from our sponsor. Check it out. The the weird thing to say, and, and it breaks my heart to say it, is that, so I saw Psycho 2. I'm like, this is incredible. So I watched Road Games. I'm like, this is also incredible. I'm like, let's watch Cloak and Dagger. Guess what? Not as good. Kind of fucking boring. <laughs> it's not. So the one that I really grew up loving and had, like, memorized, it, it you know, it doesn't hold up, really. So, Bethy, what are some things about Psycho 2 that really struck you? The first thing that struck me is the very beginning where they just use the shower scene from Psycho. That it just starts with the shower scene from Psycho, I thought, was such an interesting, ballsy move. I it sort of It helps, uh, you know, explain the plot, because we know that, oh, this is the guy who did the thing with the shower that I've seen and, like, parodied on The Simpsons. But then it also... That's like the the height of the violence in Psycho, and this movie starts there, which lets you know that it's going to be ramping it up a little bit. Like, if you thought this was, like, titillating, you're going <laughs> to see some bush, and you're going to see knives go through people's heads in this movie, so get involved. I, I just, I, I really want to know why they were like, we'll just use Hitchcock. We'll just use that segment. <laughs> it was incredible. The way the way it is an abbreviation, though, of that scene and the way it transitions kind of seamlessly into the rest of the movie is like, it doesn't even really feel like a recap. They really managed to stitch it in in a way that feels fluid. I, I Yeah, I really like it. I, 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 I was pretty stoked about it. But David, what are your feelings on opening with footage from Psycho and then gradually transitioning from black and white to color? It's one of my, to me, one of the most confident parts of the movie because it opens up being like okay here's the mic drop scene from psycho look how well this is shot look how stylish this is hey the score is so good all right well now we're gonna have a new score and we're gonna be in color and these actors are older and now we have to like follow that up so to open with that if the next scene was just like okay or if like the score was just like okay, or if the movie didn't look good, or if it didn't have style to it, you'd just be hyper aware of it. Like the movie is basically just like that's just the thing I really like about the movie is it's not taking like 
an easy victory lap because they're like, Haskins is going to have Psycho on the title. It's like, look, we understand what we're up against and we're going to try to deliver. That's that's my pretentious way of explaining how I feel about that opening. I think it also helps like ground the audience and the fact that Norman Bates did kill seven people because for so much of the movie, he is like kind of a wooby, like a poor little guy. And he's trying so hard to not be a murderer anymore. And things just keep getting like put upon him that you could very easily lose track of the fact that he is a murderer. And he did do this murder that you saw at the beginning. You need to have that in your mind fresh. I think the most effective part is when the all the townspeople like surround the house and start yelling, evil dies tonight. Evil dies tonight. <laughs> oh, man. Adam and... Fuck off. <laughs> well, it's funny, though, because, you know, Michael Myers ki- killed way less people in Haddonfield, and that whole town went nuts. And uh, Norman killed way more people, and, like, a couple people are mad. <laughs> so it's, like, definitely... Those are different sequel vibes. Uh, yeah, there's there's uh, there is one uh, member of the wait staff at the diner who you think doesn't like Norman because he's murdered people, but then you find out she's just kind of an asshole to everybody. So it is a town that's willing to just sort of like let bygones be bygones, even as it relates to Norman Bates. I think the various twists. We've already warned people that this is going to be spoiler heavy, so we can talk about this. But I feel like the way. All of the twists succeed each other in the movie is so effective. Uh, there, there are several points in the movie, even having seen it before, where I questioned whether I had remembered the sequence of events correctly because it's so well executed. It's like, oh wait, is Norman killing this people, these people? And then it's like, oh no, he's not killing these people, but he's clearly not innocent. And the gaslighting flips a switch in his brain that eventually turns him back to good old Norman. But, uh, Ben David, how 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 did that play for you? It's funny. This falls into a category uh, of movies that I really love, which I like to call the "Don't Prank a Serial Killer" genre. Which is, <laughs> there's several of these movies where someone's like mad at a killer, so like they do things, and then they get really surprised when there's repercussions for it. They fuck around and find out. And this one, as a writer. Every time I watch this, it makes me feel stupid because the degree of difficulty of setting up this layered plot and the reveals is extremely high. It's like all about like keeping you in the dark about what's really going on with him, keeping you in the dark about other people's intentions. And there's all these different things happening at the same time, which are complicated and also have to be revealed in the exact right way where every time I watch it, there's elements of it in the same way as Thomas, where I'm like, wait a minute, is this person doing this? And the and my favorite, if we're just going to spoil it, is the tragedy of the daughter uh, who Mary. feels bad about pranking him, tries to fix the situation, and before she dies, she misunderstands what's going on and thinks that he's a killer and like killed her mom. And... And you, and every time I watch it for a brief second, it's like, that does feel like the ending. And to write a whole movie that can work like that, and then there's the additional scene that makes everything else even more complicated, I can't think of many comps for that. Like, it's like, it's a deceptively complicated script, but it's presented very simply. I think it's insane that I, I I agree with you. I think there are multiple places this movie could end and they would be satisfying unto themselves. And when it continues, it never feels too convoluted. But I think the fact that the final scene with his real mom, the fact that that doesn't kind of break the movie or doesn't feel like jumping the shark, but just kind of works and feels like a logical continuation of what the movie has set up, I think is kind of incredible. Even when I was watching it this time, I was like, oh my god, I forgot that's the real mom. Is the movie about to crack down the middle? And it doesn't. The movie just shovels away any cynicism you could have (laughs) about how the movie's going to go, because that's like that ultimate, it's like he hits her over the head with a shovel, then like that overhead shot, right? Yeah. uh, and which is what a great ending. And it's funny too, because you want to, it's like the, is that the only violence that we see him do in the movie? That's is him yeah, killing a killer. He does. 
So it's great. You get to have your cake and eat it too. You get to have a movie where Norman Bates kills someone brutally in a stylistic manner, but he's also doing it to get rid of a killer. You know, he's like the original Dexter. No. He doesn't even like behave violently once he is fully snapped and kind of thinks that um Mary is his mother because she's dressed up like him. Like he is saying, like, no, I'm going to protect you. Like I have bought into your deception but even then even then in this moment i'm not violent it's only after she also dies that he completely snaps and goes homicidal that that stuff rules and and but david the thing that you were just saying about how that's the only moment of violence we see him commit in the movie you also don't realize until moments before he commits that act of violence that it's the only act of violence you've seen him commit in the movie. Because there are instances earlier where you're like, oh no, did he don mother's clothes and kill again? But in that scene, you realize where everything was happening and who was pulling the strings, but that ultimately the murders you saw that maybe could have been Norman were this this real mother. The succession of things of like, oh, she's her daughter. Oh, wait, the mom isn't the killer? Oh, wait, now the mom's dead? Wait, so, oh, so it's Norman. Oh, God, no, it's not Norman. Like, it's this whole thing. <laughs> and, and and also to have Robert Loja play such a great paternal part. Like, his role <laughs> would usually be played by, like, a very kind of meek guy who usually plays, like, kind people. And then you have, like, Robert Loja as the guy who, like, loves Norman and, and like, really wants Norman to be okay. But we got to talk about Robert Loja's death which is set up as a mirror of the death in the first movie where the guy's like falling and the camera's tracking Mm -hmm. with him, but instead accidentally stabs him. Then he falls over the ledge, landing on the knife, pushing the knife handle. Yeah. It's really intense. That is a great classic kill in my opinion. I also think that is Toomey the name of the motel manager. Am I remembering correctly? Dennis Franz. Yeah. Yeah. Toomey or Toomey. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. His kill, there is just a moment where the the knife swings through the frame and this giant gash opens on his face. And it's not really even bleeding before you cut away, but it's just such a visceral moment. I, I, I feel like because the original Psycho mostly just has implied violence, the moments in this really hit. And they're all very artful and impactful unto themselves. I just think it's like a really good movie. Um, <laughs> I, uh, oh, okay. I, th- okay. I just think that it works. But yeah, the, the violence of it, it's like, it is funny. It's like one, two, and three have definitely a sense of escalation in terms of the real, like, on screen stuff. But I do, there's just something really interesting about the way that this movie has you rooting for Norman in a way that I think is. Not just, like, transgressive. I like it. I like that the movie is like, hey, this is a abuse victim who did some really bad stuff, and he paid a punishment. Can he just flip burgers and, like, live this really low-key life? And you kind of get... I mean, I every time I watch it, I'm rooting for him. And it's partially performance, partially because, like, it's not real and whatever, because it's just a movie. But, you know, I want him to be fine, and I want him to like you know be in therapy consistently and like just have some something i want him to have a friendship with meg till i want them to like hang out and like play go fish but you know what just some other people they can't let it go and they had to prank a serial killer (laughs) and they got got this movie is is like touching on specific things that were happening in like criminal justice at the time as far as like some pretty yucky overreach of like victims rights movement because victims rights is like a very complicated issue because a lot of it at the beginning was about getting more transparency from the police during the investigation like the victims were getting abused by the police during the investigations of their own crimes and so the first victims rights bill was designed to help with transparency in the process and to be involved in sentencing and just to give the victim more of a say in that moment. But as that whole movement has gone on and on, it has become really like punitive and like vengeancy. And there's this great book, Savage Appetites, that talks about a friend of the family of the Tates who has made 
like making sure no Manson people get out like their entire life. Like they've completely centered themselves in this tragedy that involves so many other people. Right. So I, I really appreciated this movie looking at stuff like that. And even sort of like hand service things of like, you know, normally you would have a social worker who would check up on you regularly, but no budget cuts. Oh, well, this probably won't have consequences later. Bye. (laughs) Feels very real to the time. I just wrote down, like, thanks a lot, Reagan. When he was like, there's not going to be social workers. Like, yeah. And he's probably also getting let out of the hospital because Reagan is defunding the state hospitals as we speak in the 80s. So I think the real villain of almost, I don't know, maybe hundreds of movies is Reagan. Like, if you really (laughs) wanted to do, like, a podcast series of, like, Reagan is the villain and then just go through a movie each segment, which is like, all these things happen because he was fucking president. I think that'd be good. Snakes on a plane. Dude. You know, I don't... If they had, if he hadn't busted up the traffic control unions, that would have never happened. <laughs> See, you already ruined it. I'm trying to pitch a remake of Snakes on a Plane that takes place during exactly that. It's like one of those, like, <laughs> I want it to be really political, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to oh, get a it. A thinker. And the thing about it is when you think <laughs> about it, politicians are snakes. Fuck. Wait, so... Wow. Do you want to run that by me again? <laughs> so, so when you think about the behavior of politicians as a people, it's comparable to the animal known as the snake. You could say, in a way, those people are like snakes. Uh, I should say, for listeners of the podcast, and also you specifically, Ben David, that I am a head for the Beltway, uh, and I think they only do good. <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I, I look at it all as, like, gossip. It's just fun to see the movers and shakers, like, who's going to vote up, who's going to vote down. There's no consequences to any of it. It's just fun. It's like sports. Who cares? <laughs> yeah, man. Is our team going to win? Is your team going to lose? Let's find out. This is It's all, everyone's on the same side. I feel like we have to donate to someone for putting this shit out on a, on a podcast. I feel like we, I, I got to give someone $10, a, a really good philanthropic organization. You could donate to the Innocence Project. Or you can give it to Catherine Cinema. Kristen Cinema? Is it no, Kristen Catherine. Cinema? She's cool. Catherine Cinema is like C-I-N-E-M-A. That's like the cool version of her. It's like, yeah, I really yeah, wish I... we voted for that person. She likes movies and she's not evil. I, th- I think this one's actually like Kirsten Cinema, right? It's like K-Y-R. I refuse to learn. That's not my problem. Anyway, yeah, she's she definitely, she had mimosas today. Um, but just to, to bring it back to Psycho 2, a movie where Norman Bates does not drink mimosas because he's trying to keep his shit together. What, uh, what are we missing? Other than to say this is a very sophisticated movie about the power of gaslighting. And also, you could say generational trauma is a theme because it's all about shitty moms all the way down. Oh, yeah. It's nice that there's this framing, this parallel device of, like, Mary and her mom and Norman and his mom slash moms of, like, hey, the people who molded you maybe shouldn't have had kids. Oops. Oh, well, you're an adult now and responsible for your own actions. It's it's cool to see that um, mirrored like that. And the original title was Psycho 2, Living in the Shadow of Your Moms. <laughs> Plural, which is an important uh, distinction. But um, yeah, no, it's like Mary Mary has the opportunity to break that cycle, but still, she's got to pay for the sins of her mom. Mary's death is so sad. Yeah. But also, like, whips ass. Yeah, but it's, a, it's, a, it's another one of those things. It's just like the moral of the story is don't prank a serial killer. Because I, I really feel for her. She's a great character. But it's sort of like, you moved into a house with a guy who killed a bunch of people. And, and you were duplicitous. You shouldn't even do that to people who haven't killed anyone. That's a really good point. Yeah. You shouldn't gaslight your roommates. It's fucking rude. You know, like, I think there would be a really good Reddit thread that Norman would write. Like, an am I the asshole <laughs> about what happens in the situation of this movie. That would be, like, a huge hit on Twitter. Just writing it in character that. I'm actually just going to go do that right now. It is interesting to see, like, Vera Miles, uh, whose character has a name, but whatever. Loomis, right? Loomis, Mrs. Loomis, but, like, what is her first name? Doesn't matter. Point is, uh, her plan is, like, I'm going to use my 
daughter is like a child soldier in my war against this one guy. Which is pretty deranged considering what she believes him to be capable of. Her her like best case scenario is we're going to torture this man into committing murders again. But you probably won't get murdered. I feel like this is like her plan has like no margin for error. It is not a good idea. And I I sorry if that's a controversial. It's just what I think. I think 70% of good movies are about someone who should know better making a mistake because they're obsessed. It that never gets old, whether it's Neil McCauley fucking up or just like that whole thing, it's like it's the best kind of way to get a story going is someone is really upset and they're so upset that they don't realize what they're doing is dangerous. And that's what the mom does. I think it's an incredible generosity here that Richard Franklin and the gang called this Psycho 2 and not Bad Moms. Because uh, then, you know, we uh, we wouldn't get Bad Moms. It would be called something else. And then we could have had Bad Moms Christmas, which would have been the follow-up to this. With... Uh... A festive corpse of mom in the <laughs> living room next to a Christmas tree. and But they don't allow alcohol in the house. And that's going to cut down on shenanigans. Oh, well. But maybe that's where the shenanigans start. Is like mm-hmm. there's a bad eggnog and then Norman is suddenly just murdering. <laughs> I haven't actually seen the Bad Moms movie. So I don't know that Mila Kunis is not like pushing around a dead mom in a wheelchair. That's Dead Moms. That would be wild. Dead Moms is <laughs> a whole different franchise. Moms. Dead Moms is a Shudder exclusive. We are sponsored by Shudder as well. Uh, it's actually definitely a Shudder exclusive. I watched it <laughs> twice. It's a very good movie, uh, and you can't tell that it was made for no budget. So, Look, we really went down the rabbit hole on that one, and we just, just should stop it. And by we, I mean I. I'm trying to see what else we're missing. Um, we talked about the back lot. We talked about Meg Tilly's shag haircut. Oh, something that I'm still, this is something that I've been curious about since the original Psycho is I don't understand the climate of this town because everywhere, like the basement is the dustiest place I've ever seen. So there's a scene where these two teens are going to get it on in the basement of a murderer, like where the dead body had been like found earlier. They're like, this is the best place to have sex, but it's so dusty and gross in there that I am thankful that they're killed and don't have to actually have sex in that disgusting basement. Well, no one's been in that basement in a long time. And I also think it's a testament to really good production design that they made it that dusty because that's actually one of the, this is just going to be the most weird tangent ever. It's just, you can always tell when something's a set because like sometimes shit is just so clean. Yeah. And this one, I'm sure he's just like, People need to believe this is a real basement. Get all of the dust. Like, all the dust you can get within, like, 10 square miles of Universal Studios' back lot. And we're <laughs> going to put all that in this basement before these kids have sex. Bethy, yeah, that's a good that's a good question, though. It's just everyone in the town sleep on the same big lawn. Is there no other room where these two teenagers could have sex? Just this insanely dusty basement so far out of the way? Well, this is not in a town, though. Isn't the hotel just sort of in between towns? It's in the it's country, but there's a town. nearby yeah. town. Yeah. But the place looks so arid, and yet there is a nearby swamp that is deep enough to submerge <laughs> several cars. I'm just confused. It looks really dry, like the scrub brush by the house, and then this arid, dusty basement, and yet there's this really nearby swamp that is there all like all the time and enough, to, like deep enough to submerge like cars and bodies. Wait, wait, wait! I wait, wait, don't wait. understand. Is there? A, there's a car in the swamp from a body in this movie, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah, but and that's the first. But, but that's put there. You believe intentionally to make it seem like they want someone to find it because that's where Norman always would put his bodies. So why did the person do that? I don't know. Like if they're trying to hide the body, that's not what they would do. I think that they that she thought that nobody would check. I think this was an honest whoopsie on her part. You know, she wasn't actually out for the whole news coverage of Norman's arrest and trials maybe she didn't know the deets maybe she didn't know the swamp was where the previous car was found and she didn't watch the original psycho yeah i think when in doubt if i ever have a logic question on a movie and someone goes no no no, no, that's just that's an honest whoopsie 
it, I, st- I forget what my issue was because it's like just such an elegant way of like brushing something under a rug is like an honest whoopsie. I think we all make whoopsies sometimes. And if, you know, that whole town was more forgiving, I think that a lot more people would be alive also. Just accept the honest whoopsies in your life. Have the grace to embrace an honest whoopsie. Does evil need to die tonight or does it need to be rehabilitated? Tough to say. I just, I want to say, I think it's really sweet that the mother and the son, independent of one another, arrived at the same swamp. (laughs) That's when you know that it's for real. You know, I think there are so few opportunities for really meaningful connection in this life that for that to happen, for them to sort of find that swamp without meaningful consultation with one another is beautiful. I think an important thing I need to say just before I forget is that when I was initially asked to go on this podcast, uh, I was talking to my friend Micah and I said I was worried because maybe people wouldn't be able to tell the difference between my voice and Thomas's voice. And Micah's response was, oh, no, his voice is way better. (laughs) So, uh, Micah, if you're listening to this, this was me publicly telling you that that was that hurt my feelings. That puts me on the spot in an uncomfortable way, but it is funny. Thank you, Micah. Uh, I'm all for <laughs> kind of shit flinging and uh, people influencing an existing power dynamic uh, in in small ways here and there. As does the characters in this movie. Thomas, what was the radio station that you worked for again? Yeah, we're talking Laser 103.3 FM, uh, serving Central Iowa. Was it Laser with a Z or an yeah, It was a Z. Uh, L-A-Z-R oh. was... Uh, what what we were looking at and it was a lot of um creed nickelback slipknot uh when they pivoted more to radio rock everything you would want so when people would see lazr why didn't how would they know it's laser and not ace ventura saying la who's a her uh that actually happened a lot and 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 we initiated a, a really costly brand awareness campaign. Um, we launched spots on competing radio stations and local news channels to try to spread awareness for the actual pronunciation, and uh, it it did nothing. I think it did lead to their bankruptcy. It was a very misguided use of funds. I remembered the other thing I wanted to talk about. Please, about yes. The movie. <laughs> okay. I thought it was a nice detail that when Norman Bates like tosses a handful of drug paraphernalia at Dennis Francis' character and is like, what is what is all this stuff that I found in the vacant rooms? And he's like, that's drugs, man. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> um, I appreciated that one of the drugs that was tossed out was a bottle of Rush brand poppers. <laughs> I was like, okay, this is a fun uh, sex hotel. Go off. That's a brand of poppers that is quite good, actually. See, Norman had the opportunity to learn something, but instead just dismissed it out of hand. Mm -hmm. The weird thing about that scene was it was improvised, and Anthony Perkins just threw everything from his pockets onto the desk. (laughs) Uh, I actually didn't know what any of the stuff was he threw. I've seen the movie like 20 times, and I have not looked. I didn't pay attention. Because uh, I don't know what drugs look like unless it's weed. Just Well, no, I've seen a bunch of movies where people put like a white powder in their nose, which I think is, I think that's meth. I think. Yeah. Okay. Correct. See, I'm I'm very knowledgeable about drugs and movies. Speaking of Anthony Perkins having poppers, I do Whoa. find this movie really parts of this movie are quite sad when you think about the things that Anthony Perkins like went to crooked psychotherapists to try and cure in himself. Yeah. Like not to get too psychoanalyzy about it, but he tried to cure his homosexuality for decades, and I think that's part of what he saw in the character and in the story, and that's a real fucking bummer. That is really sad. Um, it, it's it's very sad, and, and not to be crass, but I do think it lends a very like tender quality to the performance, and I, I think that what what he brings to the role, it's just that's that's why you want to hug Norman, even with, you know... All the weird crap he's done. Well, you know, a lot of great actors, uh, like their ability to convey vulnerability on screen is directly related to, you know, being that way in real life or having stuff that they're dealing with. I mean, it's interesting. There's like the method of acting of like Kurt Russell where he's like, all you got to do is memorize the lines. 
So what else are you going to do? <laughs> and then there's other people who like really plumb the depths. And uh, you can kind of see that with some people. And then some other people are just like really good at pretend, man. That was, look, I just explained all of acting unsolicited. <laughs> no one asked me to in about 40 seconds. So there you go. That's my take on acting. That's one for hashtag acting Twitter. Could be a thread. If you want to know anything about all I know about acting, I, I know from audio commentaries with Kurt Russell. So like whenever I'm on set, I'm like, well, look, you guys on the commentary for Big Trouble in China, what Kurt Russell says about scene. <laughs> Everyone's just like, why do you keep telling us about Kurt Russell? That's nothing to do with the scene. I'm like, well, does it? Who knows? Kurt Russell's wine brands are readily available at Disneyland. Is that true? Okay, so you got to know about me and Kurt Russell wine. So uh, I went to go on a vacation once to this small town in Iowa, that was in California, sorry. It was like <laughs> supposed to be like the next hit place. And they said on their website, and we have a wine bar owned by Kurt Russell. So I'm like, that's a good enough reason to go on vacation there. So go there, get a hotel. I go into the bar and I'm like, you know, so does Kurt Russell ever come by? And they're like, no, he sold it last week. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, I'm like, I cannot believe I'm paying for booze at a bar that is no longer owned by Kurt Russell. I don't even want to know what actor owns it now. You're probably drinking the Coppola wines. That's fine. <laughs> no, he still owns the label, I think. I know they're still making it under his label. I don't know if they, he sold it. Like, Casamigos isn't technically owned by George Clooney anymore. But, oh, I never, for past listeners, uh, I ended last week's episode by saying that I had been drinking Vanderpump wine the whole time. And I said that I would do a a, sl- a little wine review uh, of the next episode, which is this one. And uh, what I will say about Vanderpump Chardonnay is that has a slight taste of pillowcase, but not in a bad way. <laughs> like, it tastes like something that has been near hairspray. Like, it has, like, a, f- a floral note that is, like, a little artificial and a little hairspray-y, but overall a nice wine. Just, like, a weird hairspray finish. In the vicinity of hairspray, with a slight aftertaste... A pillowcase. Mm-hmm. Of, of hair and hairspray, yes. What is that, a, n- a 9 out of 10? <laughs> I would give it like an 8.5, yeah. That sounds like a 9.3 to me. <laughs> yeah, I actually actively seek out wines that taste like um, uh, cat piss and uh, wood chips. Well, there's two schools of thought about wine. Do you want your wine to taste like a pillow, or do you want your wine to taste like a pillowcase? And when I think <laughs> about it, I'm like, let's just go directly to the source. Let's go to the pillow. Like, why do we want to taste like the thing covering up the thing, you know? Whereas I and hopefully others say that you case a pillow for a reason. Whoa. So you've been listening to watching movies at the bar. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for sticking with us through Lesbian Vamptober, through sequel upon sequel upon sequel, through uh, pillowcase talk. (laughs) <laughs> we really this this one's for the listeners ben david thank you so much for coming on the podcast if someone wanted to hear you talk about larger pillow theory uh where, where will they find you online they won't um <laughs> i'm i'm hiding he's hiding <laughs> uh i have a secret tumblr if you get on my newsletter you'll get the password for it i have a i also still have a myspace page somewhere um, and I occasionally embarrass myself on Twitter and Instagram. And Thomas's tweets are much funnier, so you should follow him on Twitter. My hope is that they already do. What's your Twitter handle? My hope is that they just stumbled upon this, like something like <laughs> a diamond in a in the rough. When someone just one day is like, "I want to hear someone talk about Psycho 2. and they're like, "What is this magical podcast?" I don't know. I'm I'm at BD Grabinski. I'm gonna follow that, Bethy. What about you? Are you on Are you on Twitter? Are you on Instagram? Yeah, on Twitter I'm at Bethy B S Q U, and on Instagram I'm at Bethy Squires. Thomas, where is your much funnier Twitter? It's not. It's not much funnier. It is much dumber. But uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter at, at handsome underscore pal. And we made you listen through twenty plus episodes of the pod to reveal our handles. We've not done mm-hmm. this. 
this segment before. But uh, we also have a Twitter for the show that is at MovieBarPod. And then we have an Instagram for the show, which is at MovieBar underscore pod. So thanks for listening. And, you know, once again, our classic sign-off, you case a pillow for a reason. Exactly. Wait, but David, did you have a separate sign-off? So my eternal spoilers <laughs> are that you're going to have a good time. All right. Check it out on Reels. Watching Movies at the Bar is edited by Colin Jenkins with show art by Lindsay Farrell. And that theme you hear at the top, that's Quentin Mulligan. <laughs>